We'll be continuing this morning our series of going verse by verse through the book of First Thessalonians. I've really enjoyed this, and I praise the Lord that we get to study His Word verse by verse and preach through the Bible. And I'm sure going forward, we'll continue to have series and times where we just go one week at a time and let the Lord lead for the topic. But I'm also excited to just continuing to pick books of the Bibles and go through them, be able to learn the doctrine. And I look at that as number one in a way of if you're coming to church, am I doing what I'm called to do? My desire is that you're learning something about the Bible, that we learn what it has to say, that we learn the correct interpretations and how it applies to our life. And I know that I certainly have gotten more out of this book by studying it to preach it every week than I have before. So I pray that the Lord is using it to speak to our hearts. In brief way of review, we know that this church at Thessalonica was founded by the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey to Macedonia. He had desired to travel somewhere else to preach the gospel at this particular point in time. He prayed about going into Asia and the Holy Spirit forbade him and said this would not be the time for you to go there. Then he prayed about going in the other direction and the Holy Spirit did not give him liberty. But in a vision in the night, a man appeared from Macedonia to the Apostle Paul saying, come over here and help us. And they were called as we are to try and see that the gospel goes into all the world and to every creature, but they had to pray about God's will and God's timing for where they went and when they went. And at this particular time, God had opened a door in Macedonia where people's hearts would be willing to receive the gospel. We talked about the culture of ancient Greece, which is where Macedonia and Thessalonica was found. We talked about that last week and that it it was very much a pagan culture. They worshipped idols. They didn't have a Jewish background and simply needed to be convinced that Christ was the Messiah, but they were used to pagan idol worship and a society that was filled with fornication and with sin and all kinds of things that the Apostle Paul had to battle. But as he was only there a short time to preach the gospel, they responded to the word and they received it gladly and a church was established. Paul was not able to stay there long for he faced persecution and opposition from the Jews and from the Greeks there in that city. But as he traveled other places to preach, he began to hear good reports about what God was doing through this church and through a church that was filled with faith. They had begun to spread their faith, to tell other people about Jesus Christ. And Paul said that he would travel to another town and to those people before he could even talk about the church at Thessalonica. They would say, have you heard what good things God is doing through this new church? And they began to tell people about Christ and the story of what God was doing through them began to spread. But Paul was full of an anxiety and a care for them. He loved these people. He had what we would call a pastor's heart. He cared about the people that he administered to, and he was wanting to go back to that church to visit them in person, but he said that Satan had hindered him. He had impeded his progress. He was not able to make it back in person and see how they were doing, so he sent Timothy, his most valuable right-hand man. That was no doubt a blessing to Paul in the ministry anywhere that Paul went, he said, Timothy, I'm not going to be selfish and say you have to stay with me at all times, but I'm going to send you back to Thessalonica to see how those people are doing, to minister to them, and I want you to let me know how are they doing. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul gushes with joy over the good report that Timothy had brought, that they showed evidence that they were true converts as they continued following Jesus Christ and they were grounded and rooted in that faith. 
But then as we move to the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul said he wanted to talk to them about the things that were lacking, about the things that were remaining. And no matter how good the report is of us, no matter how much we have grown in the Lord, there's always going to be things that we need to work on. We're always going to be capable of growing in grace if we will humble ourselves and listen to the message of the Word of God. So after the first three chapters, he turns from praising them and telling them how much he loves them to giving them some specific information and doctrines and be able to speak to some questions that they had for him. Last week, we started into chapter 4, and in verses 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul told them it was the will of God for their sanctification that they would abstain from fornication. They were living in a society where fornication was accepted, and it was rampant, and it was part of the idol worship and different ceremonial things that they had going on. But the Apostle Paul said it is the will of God for you as a Christian to abstain from fornication, to abstain from sexual activity that is outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage. We stopped last week at verse number nine and briefly he told them the will of God was that they abstain from fornication. And then secondly, it was that they would abound in love. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse nine. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And one of the evidences of our salvation that we truly know the Lord is if we have a love for other Christians, if we have a love for the brethren. Jesus told us in John 13, 35, that the hallmark of Christianity, the distinguishing characteristic that would allow other people to know that we truly are children of God is by the love that we have one towards another. For if we proclaim to know God, to love God, and to love people who need God, but then we turn around and hate other Christians, it's a poor testimony and it does damage to the cause of Christ. But Jesus said, if the outside world and people who don't know God look at me and my brother in Christ and see us loving one another, they will know that there's something different about us. They will know that we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren, which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. The love that they had for other Christians in that region was evident. But Paul said, I want it to grow. I want it to continue. I want it to increase more and more the love that you have for other Christians. So he told them, abstain from fornication, abound in love, and then lastly, to apply integrity. And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The word here for study means to apply yourself, to labor earnestly, to do something. So he says, I want you to apply yourself to do a couple of things, to be quiet and to do your own business. The phrase there in the Bible, to do your own business, carries the literal meaning of mind your own business. He writes later in 2 Thessalonians that they shouldn't be so consumed with the fact that the Lord is coming or with any other distraction and use that as an excuse to not work with their hands and do what God had called them to do, which was to labor, to work, to lead a quiet, peaceable life, mind your own business, and to work hard as we commanded you. And as Paul has said about five times already in this epistle, the commandments that he gave them were not his own commandments, but they were the commandments of the Lord. That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that ye may have lack of nothing. He uses the phrase here, we should walk honestly toward them that are without. 
And when that phrase is used in Scripture, them that are without, he's talking about those who are without the church, those who are outside the family of God, those who are lost in their sins. And as Christians, we should strive to not only let it be known that we love one another, but we should have a good testimony and a good reputation in our community. That as Paul was talking about, we would be known as people who work hard, who are not idle all the time and being busybodies and getting into other people's business and trouble, but rather that we are known of people, that we are known of character, that we are known as people who have integrity. And this will give us a good testimony. Now we're going to move on to the main passage that we have for this morning, which I suspect will be in today and next week also, which is verse 13 through 18. Now it's evident through some of the things that Paul writes to this church that they had questions, that Paul had established them in the faith and had taught them some doctrines. But they were living in a day and age where they did not have the entire New Testament written like we do. It was still in progress of being given to the church by the Holy Spirit of God through the men who wrote it. And Paul had extensively taught them about the rapture of the church and about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're here in chapter 4 this morning, and as we get to these verses, we'll see that the idea of an event where all the church of God who is alive is caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord is one that they were familiar with. Likewise, in 2 Thessalonians and chapters one, chapter in chapter number 1, we see they were familiar with the idea that someday Christ would physically return to the earth with his saints to punish those who do not know God and to set up his kingdom. So as he gets into this passage, it's sort of approached from the idea that he had already taught them many of these truths, but they had some specific questions as to how it would be applied, and they needed comforted concerning some certain aspects of these future prophesied events. Apparently, this church at Thessalonica had some questions that specifically had to do with loved ones that had already died who were saved, with loved ones in Christ who had died and who had passed on. They wanted to know, will they miss this event of the rapture, the catching away of God's church because they are already dead? Will they miss their home in heaven? What is happening to them? This is the purpose that Paul writes unto them and references this event of the rapture. It's to give them hope and comfort for their sorrow, that as they miss their loved ones who had already died, if they died in the Lord, as he puts it, meaning if they knew Christ as Savior before they died, that yes, they would have sorrow, but he did not want them to sorrow without hope. He wanted them to know that there's a hope, there's a comfort, there's a promise that the believer who dies will see each other Again, we will see each other. It's absolutely accurate to stand on the promises of God and to say that true believers in Christ will never say goodbye for the last time. For we are headed for the resurrection. We're headed for our home in heaven and a glorified body that will never decay, that will never grow old, that will never get sick. And sometimes it's almost frustrating, as I talked about this morning, the, the modern context where we want to get together, we want to fellowship, and some people have to work all night and then come to church, and some people drive a long way to get here. And sometimes we met, as we did this last summer, Matthew Wilkerson, who we're supporting with our missions dollars, and he got to come in and stay one night, and he stayed for two or three hours, and we fellowshiped and got to know him. 
But we wish that we could spend more time together with new believers that we have met in Christ. But he had to get back on the road. He had places he needed to go and churches that he needed to preach to and missions dollars that needed to be raised so that he could go to Africa and preach the gospel to them. But what a blessing it is to remember that whatever time of fellowship is cut short with our family or our family in Christ while we're here on this earth, if we are believers, we will have all of eternity. Yes, to praise the Lord, but also to see one another and to share in our fellowship of worshiping our Heavenly Father. Paul wanted them to know, yes, we will have sorrow when we lose ones that we love in Christ. But our sorrow should not be without hope. It should be accompanied with hope of the resurrection, which he goes on to tie in with the time of the rapture of the church. So he wanted them to have hope and comfort, but he also wanted them to learn the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead in Christ and how that would coincide with the catching away of the church. And if we get a grip of what the Bible teaches about these two events, it will lead to hope, to comfort, and to a purified life. So what we're going to do here is we're going to read through the end of the text. Then we'll back up and look at some other scriptures around the word of God. And eventually, probably by next week, we'll come back to verses 13 through 18 and look at it a little bit more phrase by phrase. But I want us to see this passage before we really get started and dive in this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. When he says those of you who are asleep, he's talking about those who have died, those who have passed away. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Those who have died in Christ with him as their Savior, they will come with Jesus Christ. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And as he speaks of these doctrines about the catching away of the church and about the resurrection of those who have died in the Lord, he then concludes with verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. These are doctrines that should lead to comfort and lead to hope. Number one, when is this event? As we talk about the rapture, as we talk about the catching away of the church, some people have said, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. And it's true that in the English translations, you don't see the word rapture. But just as we don't see the word Bible in the Bible or some other terms that we use, it doesn't mean that they aren't correct. What we see from this passage is that there very clearly is a specific prophecy in the Bible that there will come a day where there is a generation of the church that does not die, but rather is caught up, which the phrase is used there in verse 17, to be with the Lord. Paul says a couple of different times, those of us which are alive 
and remain. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, he says, shall be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord in the clouds. The word for caught up is the Greek word harpazo. It means literally to catch up, to pull away, to take by force or suddenly. And it absolutely is described in the Bible that some people will die in Christ, but there will be a generation that does not face death, but rather goes directly to the clouds to meet Jesus Christ. And from that point forward, they will forever be with the Lord after they are caught away in this event that we have called the rapture. Now, among Christians, there are several different viewpoints, even of the millennium itself. We teach premillennial coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, we believe he literally will come. Then there will come a literal thousand year reign where he sits on the throne in Jerusalem and rules over this current earth upon which we live. Some take the position of postmillennialism or amillennialism, which both are different ways of sorting of explaining. Well, when it says that Christ will sit on the throne and reign for a thousand years, that wasn't a literal prophecy. Jesus is going to be in heaven and the millennial reign will be taking place while the earth becomes more and more Christian. And eventually as the whole earth becomes Christian, then Jesus will come. I don't know about you, but watching the news these days, that view seems to be a little bit harder to follow and to swallow. And I do not think it lines up with what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there will come a day when Jesus will come physically to the earth and it describes that event and that time period as being a time of war, of trouble, of tribulation, of apostasy, and of rebellion against God. And eventually, at the end of Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year period that is to come, the book of Zechariah describes it as the Lord himself shall come to the earth. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. It will split in half. And the book of Revelation says that with the sword that goes out of his mouth, he will defeat the devil, the Antichrist, and those armies who have come against Israel and against God himself. And then that he will physically and literally sit upon the throne and begin to rule and reign for a thousand years. That's what we believe. Now, we believe that there's a rapture and above those Among those who believe, if the Lord will help me, the words are just not coming my mind. If you'll stick with me and hope that the Lord will help me get going here and let the words come out. Among those who believe in the premillennial return of Christ, the people who believe that all believe in the rapture, but there's different opinions still. Some believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that before the seven-year tribulation period starts that will usher in the kingdom, Christ will catch away his church. That's the view that I personally hold to, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning as to why I see that as the way that the Bible teaches it. Some people think that he comes halfway through the tribulation period, and some people think that the church is left here all the way till the end of that seven-year period, then coinciding with him coming to the earth, he also catches away his church. As I said, I hold to the view of the pre-tribulation rapture. I believe it's an event that we can't have warning of, that we have to be ready, that Christ is going to come to the clouds. He's going to catch away his church. Then all of those other events will unfold. Now, I will just stop and say this because I know that it's so hotly discussed and debated. And I know that as you look at the prophecies, it is confusing sometimes to come away with exactly what the timeline is. So those who hold to a post-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation, 
tribulation rapture, I wouldn't consider that a doctrinal issue that I would split fellowship with you or call you a heretic. I would just say, I think the evidence supports a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, but you're still my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ if you hold a different view. One pastor described it this way. He said, if I had a preacher friend who we believed the same doctrinally, but they believed in a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, I would still let them preach in my church just knowing we had a difference of opinion. He said, but if the preacher had a other view of the millennium itself and believed in amillennialism or postmillennialism, he would basically be proclaiming, I don't believe Christ is coming to set up an earthly kingdom like the Bible says. And he said, then I wouldn't really feel comfortable having someone with that kind of a theology preach to our church. And those doctrines go hand in hand with what we call preterism, meaning that some people look at Matthew 24 and the entire book of Revelation and they say all that has been fulfilled in history. It was all fulfilled at 70 AD and it was all figurative and none of those specific events are still to come. And I completely reject that. I don't see that as being compatible with a literal interpretation of the Bible. And my problem with that is that if we were to look at those events and try to allegorize them or explain them away, I think we could allegorize or explain away almost any doctrine in the Word of God because Christ simply gave too many prophecies that were absolutely specific about what He would do in the future that has not happened yet. Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, you'll read Jesus talking about Daniel's 70th week and how you'll see the abomination of desolation. And then after the tribulation of those days, the sun and the moon will go black. The stars will fall. The son of man will descend himself and come upon the earth and he will set up his kingdom. They'll separate the sheep from the goats and he will sit and rule and reign on his kingdom. And none of those things happened historically in 70 AD. There's no way I think that we can come up with what happened and say all of those specific prophecies was simply an allegory. I believe that when Jesus said, if I go away to the Father, I will doubtless come again, he meant it. It was literal. It was clear. And when he told the church in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians that there will come a time when those of us who are alive and remain will be snatched up, caught away, and go to meet the Lord in the clouds, he's talking about all those who are within the body of Christ. And that event has not happened yet. So I believe we look to the future about all these specific prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we say what the Bible is teaching us is that we are to live in expectancy that Christ is coming again. We're supposed to live in expectancy that one day He will set up His kingdom on earth. We're supposed to live in expectancy that one day He will judge sin. He will put down His enemies. And that it has not happened yet. Now one thing that I read this week as I was studying that I thought made perfect sense is that this passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4 is more pastoral than it is theological. In other words, Paul was not answering a question from a group of people who were saying, how exactly does all this happen? When is the rapture? When is the tribulation? Describe it to us. Rather, it was written to people who were grieving, who were missing their loved ones, and who did not know would their loved ones get to be a part of the resurrection and of the rapture, and what was going to happen to them. And it's interesting to note that the rapture of the church, there's three main passages that, that we cling to, that we believe are absolutely talking about this event of Christ catching away His church, and all three of them have to do with people who were troubled that needed comforted. So it's always sort of presented in a way 
of a mystery. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In other words, it's something where the details have been kind of hidden. They had been kind of shrouded. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 was addressing a church where people had been trying to spread the doctrine. There is no resurrection. There is no resurrection of the dead. We live our life. We die. That's it. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll get into a little bit here in this preaching series, he tells them if there is no resurrection, then we don't even have any hope in the Lord. If there is no resurrection, then we can't be confident that Jesus died. And he wanted that church to know that if we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again for his sins, for our sins, we need to believe the Bible when it tells us that all of us will one day be resurrected as well and be given a glorified body. So in that chapter, he talks about the rapture and he talks about correcting false doctrine from a church that said there's no such thing as the resurrection. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he's trying to give comfort to a church who was worried about the loved ones that they had lost. And in John chapter 14, when Jesus spoke of the rapture, he was speaking to his disciples who were anxious and worried about the fact that he was going to go away and leave them. And he said, no, I want you to know that even though I'm going to leave and go to heaven, there will come a day where I doubtless will come again and get you and receive you to myself that where I am, there ye may be also. So the first question that we want to ask this morning is when is this event? The answer to that, I believe, is twofold. The first is that we don't know exactly when this event is, but it causes us to live in an expectancy that Christ could return, that he could come at any moment, that we are headed for the end of time, the end of history, the judgment of the world. It could commence at any point in time in history. So we should look at that event and say, we don't know when it is, but we know that it's imminent. We know that it could happen at any moment. We don't know that Jesus is coming today, but we want to live as if he could come today and we would be ready if he came to catch away his church. And I just want to say and reiterate one more time before we get into specifics, I believe Jesus is coming again. I believe it's not an event that we should dismiss or that we should mock. And we think, well, isn't that fantastical to think of all the church being caught away and of Jesus coming? Look, our Savior himself taught it. And if Jesus Christ is God and if he could not lie, then just as surely as he came to die for our sins, he is coming again for his church and he is coming to set up and to establish his kingdom. So when will it happen? We do not know, but we believe that it could happen at any moment. The other thing that we'll probably talk about here for the rest of our time this morning is to briefly give an overview and present a defense for why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, why we believe that we should be ready to meet Jesus at any point in time, that it would be the will of the Father for him to come again. Some say that a man named John Darby invented the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture in the 1800s, in 1830. And as you look to history, you will see that discussion about the timing of the Lord's return and how it all happened seemed to not be as heightened as it is today. But what there always was throughout church history was the belief in the doctrine of imminency, meaning that Jesus Christ could come at any point in time and that we are to be ready to meet him in the air. And as we have a heightened discussion of it in our day, we do realize that they always believed. And yes, I believe that the writers of the New Testament were living with expectation that Jesus could return at any point 
and time. And many respected Bible teachers throughout history have held this view from John Darby, but also to Dwight Pentecost, John Walverd, Charles Riley, and even many popular Bible teachers that you may be familiar with today, from John Phillips to Charles Stanley, John MacArthur, John R. Rice, J. Vernon McGee, Adrian Rob Rogers, Robert Jeffers. It's not hard to find people who you look at their teachings and see that they're pretty sound doctrinally, who will present a strong defense for believing that we are supposed to look for the rapture of the church to occur at any time, and indeed that we believe it is before the tribulation period that will be poured out upon the earth. So now we're, what we want to do is briefly present the case for the pre-tribulation rapture. I'm sure we could talk about a lot more things than we will this morning, but we'll give a brief overview as to why we believe we're looking for Christ to return before the tribulation period begins. So stick with me here if you can this morning. As I said, the words aren't coming out quite as well as I would like them to, but I believe that the Lord will speak to our hearts as we look into His Word and if we will listen on purpose. I've heard much throughout my life the teaching that the second coming of Christ and the rapture has a lot of parallels with different Jewish wedding traditions and the way that those were carried out in the Old Testament time and that God through saying that the church figuratively is his bride and that Christ is the bridegroom and through what he instituted with his disciples that it would teach them from their background and thereby teach us what we are to expect from these future events. I hadn't really researched it much myself or looked into it but as I did this week, I found many reputable sources that gave different specific examples of where you could look in the Talmud and different things throughout history that would back up the teaching that I have heard that the Jewish wedding traditions hold many parallels to what Christ has promised to do with his church. There was a good article on it from gotquestions.com if you wanted to look up or read it in a little bit more specificity. But very briefly, they say that in history, when a Jewish man wanted to take a woman as his bride, he would go meet with her father, he would establish the wedding covenant and the promise that they would be married, they would drink from a cup of, uh, of what they would call wine of that communion event, and a promise would be made that they were now betrothed to be married. The bride would agree that she would enter into this marriage, and then the man would go away for an unspecified amount of time, sometimes as much as a year before the actual wedding took place, and he would prepare prepare the home that they were to live in after they were married. Then he would return at an unspecified time that he had announced and take her away. And for a period of seven days or one week, they would stay at the man's father's house to be hidden away in secret and privacy. And then afterwards, they would come back out and they would partake in all of the wedding feast and everything else that was taking place. Well, before Jesus returned to heaven, he said that the church would be his bride. He told his disciples he would go away to his father's house and prepare a place for them. And then at a future unspecified time that he had not announced, he would return for his bride. And the bride, which is the church, is supposed to be ready and living in expectancy that at any moment Christ could come to take us away to go to his father's house for the duration of the tribulation period where we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then when that is over, we will come back to earth and enter into the kingdom that Christ will establish. And in those days, if a bride who had agreed to be married to one certain man 
was to be unfaithful while he was away and then he would return, she would be ashamed. It, it would be a blight upon her. And in like manner, as the bride was supposed to keep herself pure and dedicated for the bridegroom when he would come, the church is supposed to keep itself pure and living for Christ so that on the day Christ returns, we are not ashamed, but we are ready to be received up into heaven, into the Father's house. Now, In Matthew chapter 24 and other places, Jesus had taught his disciples about the fact that he was going to come physically to the earth one day and set up his kingdom. But here in John chapter 14, which is right before the Last Supper, when Jesus was going to go to be crucified, he tells them something that's slightly different, but very specific to them and to us as the church. John 14, verse number one, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. This event is a little bit different from Jesus coming to the earth, defeating the Antichrist, and setting up a kingdom where his throne will be in Jerusalem. Jesus said, I know you're upset. I know you're worried that I'm about to go away to heaven, but let not your heart be troubled. I have a doctrine to teach you that should comfort you, that should give you hope. I'm going away, but I'm going to my father's house to prepare you a dwelling place, to prepare a place for you. And then he said in verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, which he just promised he would do, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. This is different in its description from Christ coming physically to the earth to set up his kingdom. Jesus said, very basically, I'm going to heaven. I'll prepare you a place there. And at some point in time, I will come back and get you and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also, and you may enter the place that I have prepared for you. So sometimes we see the prophecies like in Matthew 24, that Jesus is going to come to the earth and set up his kingdom. But what he describes in first Thessalonians four and in John 14 is not Jesus saying, I know you're going to have trouble and tribulation, but don't worry where you are. I will someday come. You're going to be on the earth and someday I will come back to the earth and stay with you there. Rather, he said, someday I'm coming to get you and to take you where I am and to the place that I have prepared for you. And if we follow the timeline, when Jesus comes to the earth to set up his kingdom, he's going to stay upon the earth and the church will be with him upon the earth. But what Jesus said here is he's preparing a place in heaven where he will one day come get his church and take them to. So the basic doctrine of the rapture and of believing that it happens before the tribulation is the belief that Christ's final coming to the earth to set up his kingdom does not fit with John chapter 14 or with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We believe that in Matthew 24, when it says that Jesus will come to the earth and his angels will gather his elect and the angels will go and will separate the sheep from the goats and those who know the Lord will enter the kingdom. Those who don't know the Lord will be cast away into the lake of fire. That that event is different in its description and in its purpose from what we see described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in John chapter 14. 
We believe the Bible says that the tribulation period is a period of seven years. That as we look into the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, God says that there are 490 years determined upon thy people, Daniel was told, and on the holy city. Thy people was the nation of Israel. The holy city was the nation of Jerusalem. And the specific prophecy was given that from the time that there goes forth an official decree to rebuild the wall that is around the holy city, there's going to be a period of 490 years. Then Daniel specifies that the last period of seven years is going to be what ushers in all the end of time. We taught an eight-week series on this one time during the Sunday school hour when we had that. But if you study history, when the command was given for Nehemiah to be able to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem all the way until the time that Christ came and was announced as Messiah was 483 years. It's one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible that Daniel prophesied to the exact year how long it would be before the Messiah would come. But then he said there was a last period, a last week, not of seven days, but of seven years. And he told Daniel that all of that time period was determined upon the Jews and upon Jerusalem. Therefore, in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse number seven, as it's describing the end time apocalyptic events, he says it is a time of Jacob's trouble. Who is Jacob? That's Israel. So we believe that during that last seven-year period, the focus is on Israel. And the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that the Antichrist and the devil will seek to destroy the nation of Israel, but that God will hide her and allow her safety until the end of that seven-year period, at which point in time they will repent and turn to Christ and receive Him as their Savior. It's another reason why even in the study of Matthew 24, we believe that Matthew 24, 29 through 31 is a different event than the rapture where some people say see there it says after the tribulation of those days you'll see Jesus coming but it's describing him coming to the earth to set up his kingdom not to gather away his church and to take them to heaven and even in Matthew 24 Jesus told them to the nation of Israel we believe when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. So what Jesus is telling them, and if you're having a hard time following me, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to go slow. We're going to get to more verse by verse. I'm just trying to give you the overview this morning. But what Jesus was telling them is that when you see that event, that Daniel and Matthew and Second Thessalonians and Revelation describes as the abomination of desolation, that that will kick off the very last time of the worst tribulation the world has ever known. What is the abomination of desolation? The Bible teaches us in Daniel chapter 9 that the figure of the Antichrist will establish a covenant or a peace treaty with the Jews for seven years. He will rebuild the temple. Right now, there is a group of Orthodox Jews and there is a group of Muslims who are fighting over the exact same piece of land and they both say, this is a holy site. We want to build our temple here. And in the future, there will come a figure called the Antichrist who for a short little period of time will put all of those people who don't know God on the same page. And the Bible tells us the temple will have been built and the daily sacrifices and oblations that the Jews are not doing right now will begin to take place. Those animal sacrifices that the Old Testament 
describes. And if you research on the internet and say, why aren't Orthodox Jews sacrificing animals like the Old Testament tells them to? You will see the answer because we don't have a temple. But we believe we'll have a temple again someday. And when we have the temple, we will institute the daily sacrifices. And the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will make his peace with them. At the beginning of the seven years, the temple will be rebuilt. The sacrifices will be instituted. But halfway through that period of seven years, the Antichrist is going to betray the Jews. He's going to cause their sacrifices to stop. And the book of Revelation and Thessalonians, we'll look at all of this as we get into 2 Thessalonians, but it says he exalts himself above all that is called God. And he calls himself God and demands that everyone who lives on the earth worship him and that they receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead and if they refuse to receive the mark of the beast they will not be able to buy or sell and in our day and age it's so much easier to see how that will take place that the little chip that's in our credit card that's how we spend money it will literally have to be implanted into your person or the only way you'll be able to buy something is if you're buying it on the black market at risk of death to you and to the person who will sell to you. And then the Bible tells us that at the end of the tribulation period of those days, the end of that seven-year period, Christ Himself will come, not just to the church to call away them up into the air, but He will come all the way to the earth. He will defeat them with the sword that, that comes out of His mouth. He will set up His throne in Jerusalem. The sheep and the goats will be separated, and those who do not know God are cast away. And then a thousand year reign will begin. But in Matthew 24, Jesus said, Them which be in Judea, let them flee into the mountains. He's speaking of the Jews who will live in that area at that particular time period. As we get into the book of Revelation and look at chapter number 4, well, let, let me show you this first of all. Uh, you see, you're probably not able to read that. But if you pull up and compare John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, you'll see almost an exact mirroring in the phraseology that is used. Some people have called it the Apostle Paul's exposition of John chapter 14. Because Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Paul said, sorrow not as those who have no hope. The word believe was used. Jesus said, I will come again. Paul said, the coming of the Lord. Jesus said, I will receive you to myself. Paul said, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And John 14, 3, Jesus said that where I am, there ye may be. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. In Revelation chapter 4, as the prophecies begin to unfold and as the judgments are poured out upon the earth, I believe what we see is an absence of the church or a focus on the church from that time forward. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us that the 24 elders who sit around the thrones are clothed in white raiment and that they have on their heads crowns of gold. The chapter goes on to tell us that they fall down before the throne and worship God and they cast their thrones before him saying that God is worthy to receive all of the honor and the glory. 
Well, what we believe is that the event of the rapture, that Christ will at that point give out the glorified bodies, the white robes, and the crowns that we already see the church possessing in Revelation chapter 4. Paul said, There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, referring to the future judgment day, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. 1 Peter 5, 4 says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. When are we going to receive our crown? When the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus comes. And in Revelation chapter 4, we see members of the church already seated around the throne in a white robe and in a crown, which the Bible tells us Christ will give when he appears. So we believe that it sort of launches us into that seven-year period after the events of the rapture. And that during the seven-year tribulation period, the church will be in heaven with Christ at the marriage supper, receiving our rewards and praising our Savior and having received our glorified body. We're going to be on this topic for a couple of weeks, and I'm just not making it very far this morning, so I pray that you're able to come back or to access the recordings if you have to mix, miss next week, so you'll be able to get the full picture of what we're talking about. But in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 13, there's a parable given, which I believe perfectly parallels the prophecies of those end time events. Jesus told the story that there was a bridegroom and there was a, a number of brides who were promised to him and they were supposed to wait for his return. They were told he was coming, but they didn't know when he was coming. And then the story says that at midnight there was a cry made, Behold! The bridegroom cometh at midnight. In other words, at a time when they did not have a heads up or know exactly when it was going to be. Some of them were prepared, the text tells us, and, and had oil in their lamps. Some of them were not prepared and had no oil for their lamps. Therefore, they were going to miss the marriage ceremony. They were going to miss the period where the groom would take the bride away. Most Bible commentators will say that oil is most often used as a picture of the Holy Spirit. So we believe the parable that Jesus was telling is that there will come a point in time where there are some who do not know God as Savior. There are some who do know Christ as Savior. And at a point in time in history, when neither group knows to expect it at midnight, all at once, at a surprise, there will be a cry made, Behold, Jesus has come. And it says those who had oil we're told by the ones who have no oil for their lamp. We have no oil. We're not prepared. Give us some of yours. And they were told, we cannot give it to you. You must possess your own. And in like manner, no one this morning is going to make it into heaven because you're related to someone who's going to be in heaven. God has no grandchildren. You do not become a part of the family of God simply because your parents know God. You enter into the family of God if you have made Him, as we like to say, your personal Lord and Savior. In other words, there's one specific time in history where you heard the gospel and you said, I repent, I turn to Christ, I receive Him by faith, I want salvation, I believe in you, Jesus. And just because you know He's coming, just because you know you should be ready does not mean that you are ready. Or that you will be given another chance. Someday it will be too late. And if you haven't followed or heard anything else I've said this morning, please would you make sure that you know that you know that you know that you have been born again. 
Jesus said, except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. And in Matthew 25, 1-13, the parable continues that those who were prepared, those who knew, knew the Lord, those who represent the saved, were taken in to the marriage feast and the door was shut and those who were without were not allowed to come in. But then after the marriage ceremony and feasting was completed, the bridegroom came out and he faced those who were not allowed in and eventually says to them, representing what will happen in the final judgment, as Christ will say, depart from me. I never knew you. For you it is too late. And in like manner, the view that we take is we believe there's coming a day in history that the unsaved will not be prepared for, that the saved will not have a three and a half year warning or a seven year warning to prepare for, but rather that out of nowhere, Jesus will come. He will catch away his church to the clouds to be with him where he is. And the cry will be made, behold, the bridegroom cometh and the church will be shut away in heaven for a period of trial and testing. But then after that period on earth is is over. The church will come to the earth and the bridegroom will face those who were shut out of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he will pronounce judgment on them. Further evidence is that the Bible describes the judgment of the nations. When we get through 1 Thessalonians, I think we're going to take a break and preach on the judgment of the nations and give another overview of the end times doctrine. We'll do that at some point. But in Matthew 24, what it describes is that Jesus will come to the earth and that before him will be gathered all nations and that he will have his angels separate the sheep from the goats and those who are the goats representing those who don't know God will be cast away into the lake of fire. But to the sheep who are the saved, he will say, enter into the kingdom. You get to come into the millennial kingdom. So. Not only does it not really make sense to me that the church would be raptured to the clouds only to be brought straight back down to the earth with Christ, it also does not fit that then there has to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. If at that very last moment of the tribulation, right before Jesus comes to earth, he catches all the church and all the saved up to the clouds and we come right back down with him, there wouldn't be any separation that still needed to occur. But rather what I believe is that will happen is that the church will be raptured away before the tribulation and throughout the tribulation there will still be some who come to Christ and know Him as Savior, those who have not rejected the gospel before, God will be merciful and that by the time He comes, there will need to be a separation of the sheep and the goats and those who have been saved out of that time period will enter the kingdom, but not in a glorified body. And that's how the millennial kingdom is populated by those people who continue to have children all the way down to the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. What's going to happen? The world rebels again. Satan is loosed for a little season and they try to come against the throne even when Christ himself is physically sitting on the throne having been reigning for a thousand years. There will still be an entire group of people who say we reject God, we reject him as Savior and we're going to try to go physically storm Jerusalem and take God off of the throne. And this morning it's heartbreaking to look around and see the rebellion of people. And some people say, well, why do people reject Christ? And if Christ would just reveal himself a little more, if he would just do some more miracles, then they would believe, then they would get saved. But when Christ was physically in the flesh, walking the earth, raising the dead, doing miracles, they still hardened their heart and said, we do not want you. 
And I'll conclude with this warning this morning that we need not harden our hearts, but we must soften our hearts and receive Christ and be prepared for His coming. In Luke 16, Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus died, went to paradise. The rich man died and went to hell and he looked up and said, I am in torment in this flame. It was not a parable. We believe it was a true story for Jesus never gave the names of people when he told the parable and he always identified a parable as such. We believe it was a real historical figure that this morning is still suffering because he died apart from Christ. And one request that he had outside of Lazarus coming with a drop of water to cool his tongue, he said, Abraham, I have five brethren. Would you please send Lazarus back from the dead that he may testify unto them that they don't have to come to this place of torment. And Abraham looked to the man who was in the flames of hell and he said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear that. In other words, they have the Bible. They have the Old Testament. Let them hear the Word of God. And Lazarus said, No, no, my five brothers don't believe the Bible. But if one rose from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham said, If they believe not Moses and the prophets, they will not believe. Though one rose from the dead. In other words, the problem of why people reject God is not that God doesn't do enough to reveal Himself, but sometimes throughout history He literally reveals Himself right in their face as God. And the wicked heart of man still sometimes wants to harden and reject Him and say, I will go my own way. I will do my own thing. And Revelation tells us that during the end times, they will look and they will say, it is the day of the Lamb's wrath. They will recognize that it's the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. And the Bible says they will cry out to the rocks to fall upon them and the mountains and wish that they could die because they're in so much pain. But then the Scripture says, Yet they repented not of their fornications, of their sorceries, of all their wickedness. They still refused Him. So we'll pick up last week with a little bit more talking about a few more evidences of why we are called to live in expectancy of Christ's return. We believe that the New Testament writers believed Christ could return at any time. And if he's not returning until the end of the tribulation period, we would have a warning to the day of when he is coming. Because the Bible says that after that abomination of desolation, which separates the first half of the tribulation from the second half, will be 1260 or 1265 days. If we were going to be a part of that, we would know exactly when Christ is coming. If he was coming at the end of the tribulation period. But we believe there is a different event that Christ said you are to look to heaven, be ready that I might come at any point in time. And some people will say, well, yes, there's the Greek word. It's the same Greek word for coming in this chapter that you say is not about the rapture. And then the same word for coming in another chapter that you say is about the rapture. Isn't it all the same thing? But sometimes Jesus said, I'm coming to earth to set up my kingdom. And other points, Jesus said, I'm coming to the clouds to catch away my church and take them to heaven. Next week, we'll talk just a little bit more about why we believe that it is a pre-tribulation rapture and that we believe the text calls us to live in expectancy of Christ's return. And then we'll continue on with talking about the hope and the comfort that that shares with us, which is the gist of the passage, which is that whether we live or die, we're all headed for that same moment of meeting the Lord in the clouds, receiving our white robes, our crowns, and our glorified body. And this should cause us to rejoice and to hope and to live with expectancy to say, is Christ coming today? I don't know. 
but he could come today. And if he comes, he wants us to be ready. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with the message this morning. I pray that as we unfold this, that people would get to come back to hear the full explanation of the text. And that, Lord, if what we've talked about is a little bit technical or confusing, that we would just take away this morning the specific scriptures that tell us we are supposed to live in expectancy of Christ returning. That as Paul tells even these people, God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. And as in the text, Paul said, we which are alive and remain, we which are alive and remain, he believed there was coming a day that could happen in their lifetime where Christ would return and catch us away. May we let this doctrine be a purifying doctrine that would call us to holiness, that would cause us to realize, yes, we may die and face the Lord, but we also may be caught up in the rapture and then all that that entails, which is Christ reigning, which is his righteousness, which is his putting an end to sin, reigning forevermore. May we live with these truths in mind that we may have comfort and hope and that we may seek to live a life that glorifies and pleases you. Let's continue on for just a moment of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Thank mm-hmm. you.